here. I'm sporting my new Four Oaks swag. Check that out. Um, you may have seen our staff, pastors, volunteers wearing these this past Sunday. We will be making these available for purchase for the church family here in the very near future. So be on the lookout. You want to, to snag yours this season. Okay, before we jump into Matthew 21, let me pray and we're going to get going. Lord Jesus, we awake this morning just very aware of all the unrest around us, all the uncertainty, all the um, confusion, chaos. And so now, Lord, we're asking that you would speak to us in a powerful way, that you will remind us this morning that these events are not so new um, in your eyes. They've been happening throughout the course of human history and that you ultimately are the sovereign, the king, the Lord of lords. And because of that, we can entrust ourselves to you. So please now, Father, bless our time in your word, in your name. Amen. Thanks for all who bore with us yesterday through our technical difficulties. We think we have those solved. Hopefully I'm not talking to a dead computer screen. But I think you guys are are out there. So Matthew 21, it's where we are in our journey. Matthew in a month. Again, this book because it features Peter so prominently and it seemed like a good companion piece to our study through First Peter on Sunday mornings. And even though Peter's not mentioned by name in this chapter, we're going to see there is a, a passage here, a teaching of Jesus that comes very much into play um, into First Peter. But here we go. Matthew 21 is the last week of Jesus's life. And we pick it up in verse 1 that as they drew near to Jerusalem, uh, there is this massive outpouring of celebration, support, and affirmation for Jesus and his ministry. Now, we know from John's gospel that this is in part because Jesus has been doing miraculous things on his way to Jerusalem, but particularly the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this has brought all the city into this sort of messianic fervor. They're eagerly anticipating that now is finally the time where Jesus the zealot is going to lead his followers into an overthrow of the government. And you can see that clearly the people on some level understood Jesus to be the coming king. Look at um, look here in verses um, verses 4 and 5, right? Or actually, I'm uh, go down to verses 9 and 10. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is, it, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, this would have been a, a cry. This would have been a... Um, an exclamation reserved for kings, reserved for royalty. Um, they're spreading their cloaks on the ground. They're, uh, they're palm branches on the ground. This is, they are welcoming their, this royal line, this son of David, this Hosanna. And again, this is Matthew's not so subtle way of reminding us that in fact, Jesus is the king. He, they, they, are, they are more right than they realize. Now they thought that Obviously, this was a king that was going to come and rule 
um, in an earthly way, doing earthly things and exercising political power. Um, but this is Matthew's way of showing us that even though this expectation is wrong and it's going to ultimately result in the death of Jesus, that they are more right than they realize when they are proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah and the Lord. Now, embedded in all of this, obviously, are the seeds of Jesus's ultimate death only six days after his triumphal entry. Because immediately as he enters into Jerusalem, we see that what is inaugurated, at least as it relates to the religious leaders, is a week of intense opposition, right? Um, and and we, we've seen that in this last year of life, there has been an intensification of this opposition that's ultimately going to result in the death of Jesus. Now, on one hand, we, we understand this is tragic and heartbreaking, right? That the Jews are rejecting their own Messiah. Yet, what we also see simultaneously is that the opposition of the leaders, then ultimately the people, when Jesus doesn't turn out to be who they thought he was going to be, are the very things that God uses to accomplish his holy will. In other words, Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. Why did he have to go to Jerusalem? Because he had to die. Why did he have to die? To pay the penalty for sins. It was part of the sovereign purpose of God. And that embedded in that plan is that the way God, one of the ways that God would choose to exercise his will, his sovereign will, was through the rebellion and the hard hearts of his people. Now that's a that's a huge divine mystery, how God is using, working through our sinful choices that are against, okay, in a sense, his moral will, but yet he's using those very things to accomplish his sovereign will. And we ought to think about that um, and take hope in what we see happening around our country right now. We, we wonder from a human perspective, where where is all this unrest going? Riots, um, destruction of property, looting, um, civil unrest, racial divisions, real racism, um, not to mention all the, the, the uncertainty surrounding the COVID uh, virus. And, and from a human perspective, this doesn't seem to make sense. This doesn't, doesn't seem like God's in control. It seems like somebody else is in control. But yet, we ought to take heart from Matthew 21 as we're seeing this continual opposition by the leaders and realize that God is weaving even that into bringing about his ultimate purpose. So there's, there's, four, there's four little incidents here which, which really serve to turn the heat up between Jesus and these religious leaders. And the first one is that he comes, he goes right in um, in verse 12 and he clears the temple. Now we know from John that Jesus did this at the beginning of his ministry and now he does it at the end of his ministry. And again, there's this, there's this symbolism attached that, that here, here these religious leaders are supposed to be standing guard over the people of Israel, yet their hearts are so corrupt that they allowed the temple area to be used, not just for mere, merely buying and selling animals for sacrifice, but at uh, confiscatory rates. Uh, they were cheating the people. They were robbing the people. And, and so Jesus marches right in into the teeth of the lion and he confronts them. Um, now, let me say just a little sidebar here. A lot of times when you may hear from 
a more progressive perspective on scripture that the scriptures that we really ought to per, to pay a particular attention to are the ones that relate to Jesus. That in other words, there's the red letters. That's that's if you have a Bible and the New Testament Gospels, they're, they're, the sayings of Jesus are in red letters. There's some who would say, well, these are sort of the scriptures within the scriptures. And then what Paul says or Peter says um, are sort of subordinate to these things as they relate to Jesus. And a lot of times people say that because they want to get around or work around some of the more difficult teachings of the apostles or other parts of scripture. There's a lot we could say about this, but one of but one of the things we want to be really clear about here is that we often have to ask, well, what Jesus are you referring to? Um, and usually it, in their minds, it's the Jesus of mercy and grace, and obviously that's that's pertinent. But what we see here in Matthew, the rest of Matthew, is Jesus the judge. Jesus is coming with words of warning, opposition, and condemnation. Um, Jesus speaks about hell more than any other single person or prophet or figure in the Bible. So it doesn't do just to say, we're going to listen to Jesus but not the rest of the Bible, when all the, the rest of the Bible testifies to Jesus. And Jesus says, in effect, trust the rest of the Bible and, um, and that he, um, beyond just being merely, okay, kind of a soft teddy bear, lovable figure, Jesus, in fact, is coming into Jerusalem with judgment. And we see that with him clearing out the temple. Now, as he clears out the temple, he also gives us two parables, right? The parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants. And these are basically meant to draw the Pharisees out and to have them see themselves in these parables of judgment. And the first one about the two sons, you have two sons, one who says, I want to do the right thing, but doesn't end up doing it. And the other who says, I don't want to do the right thing, but ends up doing it in the end. And Jesus's question is, well, which one does the will of the father? And the scribes and the Pharisees are, are saying, well, ultimately the one who did, did the will of the father, he, he's the blessed son. And he's trying to hold up the word of God to them as a mirror to say, well, that's you. So you say you want to follow God. You say you want to honor him. Um, you're, you think you're the first ones of the party, but you haven't even gotten to the party. All these tax collectors, Pharisees, sinners who um, initially rejected me are coming, are finally coming to me. And yet you don't recognize that. And again, a, a, an encouragement for us that no one's ever a lost cause, that God is always working and moving. And um, even when things appear bleak and dismal related to someone's spiritual condition, um, Jesus is saying, I'm, I have a love for that person. I'm pursuing that person. Uh, the parable of the tenants, again, the, the master goes away. Uh, he entrusts the tenants with the care of his vineyard. He sends back servants to check on them. They keep killing the servants. And finally, he sends his own son back and they kill the son. And again, the religious leaders are supposed to see themselves in this related to the prophets that, that ultimately they were, they always persecuted and killed the prophets. Their fathers did, and now they are doing the same. Um, and then finally, there is one episode here where the authority of Jesus is challenged around John the Baptist. And Jesus exposes their hypocrisy by the fact that um, they don't want to, they, they're asking Jesus who he is, and he's asking them, well, who do you guys think John the Baptist is? And they won't answer. 
because they know Jesus has them in a trap. If they say John the Baptist was a prophet, he's going to say, then why didn't you believe him and follow him and repent? But if they say he wasn't a prophet, they were afraid because the people thought they were the thought that John the Baptist was a prophet. And so you can just see the hypocrisy that Jesus is drawing them out. In fact, you could almost say that Jesus is intentionally picking a fight. And if that's our perspective, then that's not far from the truth, right? He's bringing all of this opposition to a head. Um, one, to, to, to speak the words of warning and judgment, um, but two, to ultimately accomplish his sovereign will, which was to die. And we know that from the very beginning, Jesus had to die. Why did he have to die, church? Because we are sick, we are broken, we are separated from God, we are sinful. And as much as it would have been nice from an earthly perspective for Jesus to come set up, set up his throne and make right what is wrong, it would not have fixed, it would, not, it would have condemned people to um, eternal separation from God versus saving them. And that's just a great thing for us to remember in our current day and age. We are looking for someone, right? Someone, some entity, something to make all of this stuff go away. COVID, riots, racism. And we do want to work for those things um, in this life. But at the same time, we have to recognize those things are not our biggest problem. Those things are symptoms of a larger problem, which is a corrupt heart, which lives in rebellion against God. And Jesus says, it's no good for me to come as an earthly king if you people cannot be participants of my kingdom. And so before I set up my eternal rule and reign with you a part of it in my kingdom, I have to come and fix the biggest problem that you have, and that's the one that's residing in your heart. And so again, this is always a call for the people of God to not invest too much hope and expectations in earthly circumstances, but to seek the Lord, to seek his will. Yes, pray that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but ultimately see all of the unrest, uncertainty around us as the opportunity to examine our own hearts, to repent, to turn, to come to God, and to ask for his mercy and grace. And that's what we want to do this season. That's what I'll encourage us towards. Okay, tomorrow, Matthew 22. But let me pray for us as we go out today. Lord, you work all things together after the counsel of your will, even and most particularly the death of your son. Without his death, we would be lost. Earthly kingdoms would only be temporal, only be temporary if, in fact, we were not reconciled to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thank you for doing that by dying on a, on a Roman cross for us. And so, Lord, now we, we do pray for all the uncertainty, unrest, and chaos around us. And we do pray that you would use it to draw people to yourself, to reveal who you are, and to rectify the biggest problem that people have. And it's the one that resides in all of us, our hearts. So Lord, please pour out your sovereign mercy and grace upon us in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us. See you same time, same station tomorrow.